there have absolutely been times where I've questioned my sense of self and I have really gone through it mentally. And I think April of this year, probably everything was compounded by the pandemic as well. I probably had one of the lowest months I've ever had in my life. Like I was waking up every Monday morning and bursting into tears. Like anything on a Monday morning could make me cry and make me really question myself and really feel down about myself. And it was because we'd put a podcast up this morning or that morning and I would just be riddled with fear that people would hate what I said, hate me, leave the podcast thinking that I'm not very good at what I do or I'm not a very good person. So... I'm Alison Rice, and welcome to Offline the Podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast, and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a bit of a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create, and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of considered courses I've created with our collective needs in mind, and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. You can find me, at Alison Larson Rice. I hope this episode helps you on your way, and I want to thank you for being here. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be catapulted into the public sphere with one of your best friends before the age of 25? Oh, and the whole thing is being recorded, and millions of people are not only listening and enjoying what you say, but some are also judging and critiquing. I have, because even at 35, I find broadcasting my ideas, thoughts and opinions entirely confronting. To be honest, I don't think I actually knew which thoughts were my own in my 20s, which is why I have so much respect for my next two guests, Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews. The pair host Shameless, one of Australia's most popular podcasts for smart people who love dumb stuff. I have a sneaking suspicion you've not only heard of it, but that you listen regularly. As you'll learn in this episode, I asked them to record a little while back, but actually the timing couldn't be more perfect for us to record together. They've just released a book titled The Space Between, which is dedicated to the mess and madness of our 20s. It's as fun as it is nuanced and deep. I absolutely loved it. In this episode, Zara and Michelle open up about navigating privacy, learning which stories are theirs to tell, this is a big one for me too, how being rejected from mainstream networks was the throughway to their success, the importance of therapy to process their experiences, how they're thinking about building a modern media business in 2020 and beyond, and so much more. I hope you adore getting to know these girls on a deeper level. And if you like what you hear, you can buy The Space Between wherever you get your favourite books. Here's Zara, Michelle and I for Offline.
So can we first take a moment to acknowledge how patiently I've waited for this? <laughs> we did keep you waiting, didn't we? You did keep how me waiting. How long did we keep you waiting? I don't even know this. Dal, it was about, I think, actually I looked in my DMs last night. It was around maybe June last year. <gasps> really? And I think it was that time where you were really just getting so busy. And I'll tell you what I appreciated about your response was the actual genuine want to do it, but also Mm. this knowing that you have to limit yourself at a point, otherwise you just kind of burn out. And I just could really feel where you were at. And that also, there comes a point where we have to be really strategic with our time and where we put our voices because our voices Mm. are the way we you know, grow a business and make money. So Totally. You know what as well, June last year, we were in the thick of writing The Space Between and I think we were actually quite burnt out. Zara, I wonder what you think of that. I think everything had kind of ramped up really quickly. We were taking on a lot of work. We were creating Shameless but creating other podcasts on the side as well. We were doing She's on the Money and we were doing Love Etc. at that point. So we had three podcasts going. When you said June last year, I was like, that is probably the busiest month we've ever had. Yeah, a really traumatising month. And I remember (laughs) we hadn't learned yet how to, I guess, compartmentalise our lives. And I remember Zara and I had a couple of discussions feeling like work was just bleeding into every facet of our existences at that point. So I don't even remember us having that conversation. That's how funny June last year was for both of us. No, I went back and had a little look-see in the DMs. I thought, I wonder when that was. And... um. (laughs) But time flies. And I will say, as much as I wanted to sit down then, I think now is an even more perfect time. So, Mm. and we're going to have a different conversation, I think, today than we would have had over 12 months ago. I think absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I hope we have more to offer now. Who knows? We might be getting more (laughs) stupider by the month, Alison. We'll see. No. (laughs) You'll get a whole more year of wisdom, an extra year. I reckon. Um, So, as you both know, offline exists as an exploration of true self. So, you know, I hope we can go a bit deep. <laughs> we can. No, we absolutely can. Really, it's who are we without the social media followings and the labels and the shiny job titles. And I feel like you guys have reached a point where you've become like identities. And so you have a lot of labels attached to you now and a lot of expectations. And I kind of wonder what mm. comes up for you when I when I say that, because I think self-identifying as a person, like a media personality is quite a hard thing. Well, personally for me to reconcile, but even for you guys being on a much larger sort of scale publicly. That's a really interesting one. Um, I mean, you saw both of our faces when you said stuff like that. We just got a bit awkward, like our eyes kind of popped a bit. I think for us, separating those things out is hard because so much of who we are is our job. Like our personality is very infused with our job and our job is very infused with our personality. So getting to a point where we separate those things is going to be hard. I reckon we'll easily get there through this conversation, but I, I don't know. It's 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 weird because we've built a business off a conversation between each other. So I kind of think that that is who we are, like who we are presenting on Shameless is who we are behind the scenes. Um, that said, we don't share every single part of ourselves on the podcast, but it is a, a huge part of who we are. Like nothing there is faked. I don't think you can fake having a conversation like that every single week for two and a half years, Mish. 
Mm. I think the interesting thing for us was that it began, like its genesis was Zara and I being friends who sat down to talk about the things that we cared about every single week. And we never envisaged it becoming this. We we wanted to make it successful, but we never thought it would become our lives basically and change the way we live and um, get to the point where we have employees. Like we never, ever thought that. So I think that's been really interesting that it has been a fast rise, but it's been over two years. And I think it's probably been even more, not unsettling, but just a whole new horizon for our friends and family. I think for my boyfriend, like we got together when um, we were 21. And I think the shape of my career and what it looks like and how public it is has changed a lot over the duration of our relationship. And I think that's been really interesting for us navigating the fact that when we met, I was a casual at Mamma Mia and I was trying to look for my first full-time job. And I was not, I wasn't private. Like I had always had blogs and stuff like that, but I certainly didn't have. (laughs) You weren't that private, mate. (laughs) I was never private, but I didn't have um, an audience, I think. And that's really interesting. And it's something that Mitch has had to kind of wrap his head around, but also my family in particular, like my parents, it's been a really big thing for them. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just a really weird ride and it's certainly been an unexpected one. And I do feel like so much of shameless Michelle and real Michelle are the same person. But as Zara said, there are those little jewels, I guess, that we keep to ourselves about our lives that Zara and I even share between ourselves, but not on the podcast because we do have such a a tight-knit, close friendship that means we literally talk on the phone about, I think I counted yesterday's Zara 33 times on the phone yesterday. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um we call each other like multiple times an hour, every hour until about six or seven o'clock at night. Whoa. <laughs> um, this has been a real learning for me what, um, what deserves to be in public forum and what doesn't. And I think because I came out of the gate with quite a raw style of, you know, podcast, there was part of my, maybe it was my ego and my ambition that believed that I had to keep serving up that juice to keep it in this really vulnerable place. But what I learned through doing that was that I was actually upsetting the people closest to me, you know, Tony, my husband is so private, like so private, even putting him on Instagram, he's like, oh my God, please no more. Like just, you know, stop. Um, (laughs) So that was a real learning for me. But have you had those situations yourself where I was talking to the beautiful girls from Almost 30, the podcast, and they called them vulnerability hangovers where you share publicly on the mic and then you stop recording. You're like, fuck, why did I say that? Mish and I have a pretty different relationship with what we share and how we share. I think I'm the opposite, right? I think I started this podcast keeping a lot to myself and saying to myself always that there were very few things that I was going to share because I'm just always been fiercely private. Like even with my friends, it's taken me a lot to kind of open up and say, this is what I'm feeling and this is how I'm feeling. And so over the course of um, us building Shameless, I kind of came to the realisation that I wasn't going to be very good at my job if I didn't share more, that if I didn't give people insight into who I was and why I thought the way I did and why I felt the way that I did, and I thought that I owed it to our audience to give them context on 
why I am how I am because how can I possibly trust them or expect them rather to trust my opinions when they don't know anything about me? So it's been a really slow process for me sharing stuff. And I think this book is is really interesting because I think this is kind of the peak, peak for both of us in terms of how much we share. We share more in this book than I think we ever have. And it's been nice doing it in the form of a book, Alison, I think, because we've had time to not have those vulnerability hangovers because you have a lot of time to kind of refine and refine. And Michelle and I constantly would say back and forth, are you sure you're happy to share that? Are you sure you're happy to share that detail? Let's fix it. Let's edit it. Um, so that's been really nice because I think it's been really important because otherwise I think you do run the risk of sharing all this stuff in the hope that people consider you open and you actually end up giving parts of yourself up that you don't really want to or need to. Yeah, I think as Zara said, like Zara is more naturally reserved. I'm more naturally, I'm just like a little bit loose-lipped sometimes in the moment with what I share about my life. And I had a pretty bad experience. Zara and I were actually staying in Sydney. We're up in Sydney for work and we're in the one hotel room. And I got a call from someone who means a lot to me, one of the closest people in my life. And I was so upset because I picked up the phone and she was just crying down the phone to me about something that I thought was innocuous that I shared on the podcast. This was over a year ago, something that I didn't even think about. I told this story and it didn't even strike me that someone would be uncomfortable with that because in myself, I share everything. So I was like, oh, whatever. She called me the morning that the podcast went live and was so distraught and so upset with the fact that I spoke about that. And I felt so bad. Like I sat in that hotel room thinking, I am so shit. Like I took this person's story and I shared it with tens of thousands of people and I can't take it back now. Like I can't take it back. I can't fix it. All I can do is apologize. And I think I've had those moments with a few people in my life where I've realized that I've crossed the line only after the fact. And I think it's a really important lesson for me to learn now in my 20s, because as our audience gets bigger, I guess the damage you can do to people or the lines that you can cross with them only get more serious. So I'm happy I learned that last year because I think it was really clarifying for me to think, okay, what are the stories that are mine to tell? And I think what I've come to now is that they just have to be about me. I can't go and share stories that are kind of like have two protagonists in them. And I definitely can't do that without asking for permission first. But with this book, I had to have some of the most, probably the two most difficult conversations of my entire life um, with family members who didn't know one of the stories in this book. And that was a really interesting experience as well to kind of tell your family, not only did this traumatic thing happen to me, but it's about to be in a very public setting and a lot of people are about to know about it as well. So yeah, it's been a really interesting learning curve for myself personally. And it's been something that I've lent on Zara massively. Like this year, the number of times I've gone to her and been like, I need to have this conversation. I need to tell the people in my life what's about to be published. And then I've retreated and didn't have the guts to do it. Um, has been really interesting and really tricky, but it's a very, very interesting life because sometimes you put out content and you forget that those numbers that you see in analytics are actual people and faces and sets of ears um, and humans that are going to hear it. You just completely lose all sense of reality until you meet a listener in public or you go to a live show or something. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I relate so much. And I think what I my big moment of struggle was when I shared my or our first miscarriage. And when you 
say, you know, what am, which are my stories to tell, I mean, I deeply believe that's my story to tell because, you know, it's happening to my physical body. But at the same time, I've got this beautiful man who's walking into an office and all of these people are looking at him going, I'm sorry. And like, you know, it's that thing where I don't know about you guys, but the people closest to me don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. <laughs> Mitch doesn't listen. Mitch, yeah. I don't think Mitch has listened maybe to like one full episode over the years, but he kind of like, he I think hears Zara and I talking all the time. He's like, I've got it. Like, I know I've what got all your stories, anyway. mate. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it all before. And so, of course, he, I had said to him, you know, that that particular episode was a really, you know, emotional one um, and that I did open up a bit, but I don't think he realized to the extent that I did. And so he's kind of going about his day and then walking into an office, realizing that everybody knows his news and I didn't prepare him, you know, and that's my one, I think my big one where it did something to my podcast and my audience that brought us closer together. And even in those, yeah, live episode recordings, that's the one story that keeps coming up is this sort of shared, you know, piece around loss and so I, I wouldn't take it back, but at the same time, I do feel like I've withdrawn a little bit because mm. I'm not sharing as much as I used to. And yeah, I'm, I'm yeah thankful to hear your opinion on it because I think one thing I would love the most is a podcast, podcasting partner. You know, I find <laughs> it really lonely and like to be able to bounce off each other, I think that's, yeah, such a blessing and and quite special actually. Um I would love to know how you both identify with self today versus, let's say, two years ago or perhaps when you first met. I wonder if you feel like you've deepened your relationship with your essence through the public nature of what you do, or has it challenged your ability to truly sit in self? And that, I guess, is about that boundary. Like, do you feel like you've gotten to know yourselves through being very public? Or is that work happening, yeah, privately? I think both things are true. I think for a little while there in the earlier days, I was a bit more challenged because you're trying to reckon with who you think you are and then you're trying to reckon with other people's perception of you. And what if those two things are at odds? And, like, what's the truth? Like, you kind of get a bit lost in it, particularly when you're young. You get really lost in what the truth is. And for a long time there... I was way too concerned about whether people liked me enough or whether people thought I was nice or whatever. And if they didn't think that, I started to think, well, maybe I'm not that nice. Like maybe I'm, I am annoying or maybe I am too opinionated or whatever it might be. And I think over the course of the last maybe six months, I've suddenly kind of come into a space where you have to actually know yourself really, really, really well in order to keep doing this job every week. Because if you don't know yourself really well and you don't back yourself every single day or every single time you get on mic, the pressure and the noise, Mish and I always call it the noise, the noise externally could crush you. Like it really could crush you. Um, and so every single time we got on mic, we have to back back ourselves. And I think it's interesting. I hadn't really seen a psychologist up until the last six months when I really needed to, to have those conversations about well, who am I and what do I believe and what do I really like about myself? Because I need to really nut down what I like about myself so that if there is noise and if there are people telling me that I shouldn't like myself, that I know at the end of the day what I offer and why the people closest to me love me and that's kind of the only thing that matters. So it's been a bit of a 
God, dare I say, I don't I need another word for journey. I don't, I don't it's have a journey. it. I don't have it. It's been a process, <laughs> but I think journey. now Mish and I have done a lot of work with psychologists to kind of get to the point where we know, know ourselves really well inside out and know each other and know each other's vulnerabilities so that we have the strength to be able to keep throwing opinions out there. Not that it's the hardest job mm. in the world, you know what I mean? But there is mm. a lot of noise. There is. I think a huge one for myself, I think Sarah will agree with this, is not just do people like me, but do people think we're good humans? I think Zara and I have constantly come back to that, being like, I don't care if someone disagrees with how I um, how I think about the world. I don't care if someone disagrees with my personal politics, particularly, unless they are particularly egregious in what they believe. But I do care that people think deep down that I'm a good human who is motivated by good things. And I think sometimes when you're getting negative feedback or you're hearing negative things about yourself, you question that. And that's really the one thing that matters to me. I would just hope that people don't think I'm a bad person. But that's something that I need to grapple with. I think the work that I've done with my psychologist, and I've been going to a psychologist for over three years now, has always kind of tied back into that. And because I do have quite chronic anxiety, I think all of my fears uh, come out the most intensely with this kind of public work. And it's been a huge fear of mine for a long time that people don't think I'm a good person or people think I'm arrogant or people think I'm annoying. Um, And I think the first six months of this year as well were also really intense with kind of grappling with who I am and what I think of myself. I think it's been really helpful to kind of lean on each other. Like you said, Alison, it's like a huge blessing to have someone in this career who is like a best friend and like a sister kind of figure as well that we can go back to each other. But there have absolutely been times where I've questioned my sense of self and I have really gone through it mentally. And I think April of this year, probably everything was compounded by the pandemic as well. I probably had one of the lowest months I've ever had in my life. Like I was waking up every Monday morning and bursting into tears. Like anything on a Monday morning could make me cry and make me really question myself and really feel down about myself. And it was because we'd put a podcast up this morning or that morning and I would just be riddled with fear that people would hate what I said, hate me, leave the podcast thinking that I'm not very good at what I do or I'm not a very good person. So it's been interesting because I feel like April was my lowest point, but then taking a break off in the middle of this year, we took three weeks in June. I've kind of come back and I've really recentered and I feel a lot more emboldened, I guess, and a lot stronger now than what I did even just a few months ago. Mm. Um, so I want to get it really clear. Obviously you're like offline's very niche, <laughs> which I kind of, lo- I do love about what I do. Um, but as I was saying, I have, um, I have become a lot more private more quickly than I ever thought I would. I wondered if, if each of you, do you mourn your anonymity at all? Um, no, mm. no, because I think we have a great sense of anonymity still, to be totally honest. Like, mm. I think this job is better than anything I ever could have imagined for myself. Like when I was leaving uni, I was plagued with stress and anxiety about what my career was going to look like because the media landscape was in such flux. 
And if I have told myself when I was leaving uni that you can work for yourself and you can work with one of your best friends and you can create content that you just genuinely love and you're not really beholden to anyone, I would have said, give me that and give me anything that comes with it, like anything Mm. that comes with it. And I think our audience are really lovely in a sense that they don't they don't really demand much of us in terms of our personal lives. Like sometimes they, we get the odd question like bring your boyfriends on the podcast or something weird like that. <laughs> I'll get that too. Um, they wish. But beyond that, like I just, I just don't think much has fundamentally changed beyond being very conscious of what we share on mic because like we just touched on before, that brings a whole host of other people into the story that may not have chosen to do that. I wonder if part of it as well, is that we have been basically in our homes for the last four or five months. So we haven't really had that touch point in public where we feel like we're more visible or known now than what we were before. So I think as well that probably comes into it. It is a truly bizarre feeling though. Like I remember with our Sydney show last year, we did a live show, I think it was of almost 900 people. And I remember- feeling just baffled that these 900 people knew who we were. Like that was a very unusual feeling for me. Um, But I think 2020 has been so bizarre that we haven't really had those moments where we've been like, oh, my God, I'm so exposed. If anything, I feel like I'm quite safe in the cocoon of my apartment right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I totally relate to that. Um, Shameless has become a defining voice for a generation of 20-something women who – are just navigating it all. And I talk about this a lot on offline. I would never, I don't want to do my 20s again. I mean, great, had to do them, awesome. <laughs> but I do not wish that upon myself again. You know, I'm 35 now and the day I turned 30, I was just like, let's go, new chapter, you know, because <laughs> it's such a dense <laughs> decade. Um, you've recently written a book, as you mentioned, where you offer even more advice and encouragement to, you know, your audience. It's called The Space Between. I absolutely loved it. Thank Thank you. Honestly, a huge congratulations. Um, We're talking about sort of revealing personal stories. And as you said, you do actually, there's some juice in there. You know what I mean? Like I found (laughs) that, whoa, they've really gone there with a few things. And one of them, of course, being in media, I was interested in was the um, the story about Mamma Mia rejecting Not Shameless as a podcast concept, but you as hosts of it, <laughs> the nuance of that. Um, I wondered in a practical sense, how do you believe that you have overcome that potential seed they planted that you might not be right or you might not be ready? Do you feel like you've transcended that now? I think, yeah, for sure. I mean, I look back and I wonder how long the fire burned from that particular incident. And I actually don't think it was that long with hindsight. Like when we were rejected and we were told we might, uh, and the inference for us was that we might not be right or that we might be too young or whatever. Um, For us, we were like, all right, let's just get up and do it. Like we can do it ourselves. And yes, that kind of fire is quite motivating But the kind of worry after that, that you might not be right, probably comes more internally than externally, I think, which kind of flows on very well from what we've been talking about. Like if I ever had a moment and still continue to have moments, which I do, where I think, why the fuck would anyone, oh, I didn't even ask Alison if I could swear on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's like a big swearing, crying podcast. Okay, because we we have no rules. So I've just kind of come on here and assumed. Um, 
No, when I have those moments where I think, why the fuck would anyone listen to what I have to say? That's very internal now. And I think uh, I think that flame from rejection only kind of was a, a, a light, I dare I say, for a couple of months and then we sort of moved on. I'd love to know what you think, yeah. I oh, I wonder if my flame was lit a little bit longer than yours. I, I think, think it was. Went out. <laughs> I think it was as well. I think I'm very emotionally driven. Like emotions drive me a lot. And Zara is a little bit more practical than I am and probably was funneling her energy into more like functional, better things. I think I I had that flame within me, which wasn't anger, but it was just like a desperate desire to prove those people wrong. I think that flame finally went out when we won the most popular podcast award in 2019. I think that for me to get up on a stage and know that we had been voted by our listeners um, as the most popular podcast of that year was enough for me to go, okay, like I can close that chapter of feeling like I'm not good enough and I can close that chapter of thinking there would be a better host out there for this podcast Um, because it was something I grappled with for so long. And, I mean, when you're told that at 24, you're going to ingest it and swallow it and stew on it for a long time. And I thought they were right. And I think that's something that we really want anyone who reads the book to know, that you might be rejected, but that person might not know what you know. And that person's gut might not be the same as yours. And if you think your idea is really good, I mean, Zara and I get given ideas or get sent ideas from young women all the time and we don't always respond. But if you think that idea is good, you should chase it. Like your gut's telling you something and you might uncover a whole new career path or you might uncover something really brilliant and wonderful for yourself. So as hard as the rejection was, I am so bloody grateful that it came because if it hadn't, we would have launched this podcast under a network and owned none of the IP. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have been able to monetize it ourselves. It would have been wrapped into our existing careers and that would have been an absolute train wreck trying to get out of considering it was our idea and our name and our faces attached to it. So it was the biggest blessing we could have ever gotten. Mm -hmm. I loved the advice that, and you've just shared a bit of it then, that you gave in the book like, you know, as founders, you guys are going to pass on things all the time. I pass on things all the time just the way Mamma Mia passed, you know what I mean? But if you really fundamentally believe in your idea and you can see a gap in the market for it, then get going, you know? Mm. I think it's our belief that we can't do it on our own, which you guys have proven that you have and I've proven that I can as well. And I thought that was great advice, knowing that, yeah, you're going to put stuff in front of us and we're probably going to say no, but that doesn't mean it's not worthy of pursuing because we don't want to do it. I thought that was that was good. Do you need help qualifying your idea or the hunch that it's time to change jobs or start your own thing? In my other role as Conscious Career Coach, I recently hosted a two-hour digital knowledge session about taking a career leap of faith. It's something I did two years ago to start offline. The replay is now available over on my site, getoffline.co forward slash study. I've linked it in this episode's show notes. And I hope it helps you on your way. You guys actually made the first move in our DM relationship. Um, and it was back in December 2018. And I had just. Was it that long ago? Yeah. But oh it was my so. God. It was so beautiful. I had just published um, an episode I called The Offline Manifesto. 
And it all came about um, off the back of me receiving criticism and negative reviews. My review trolls, there's like three um, <laughs> consistent ones. And, you know, the usual thing is that I'm a nobody, that I'm uninteresting, that I talk too much on my own podcast. Who am I to have this podcast? Um, stop interrupting guests. And that's why I barely, I actually don't talk that much anymore because that actually really crept in where I was like, you do fucking talk too much. You do interrupt too much. Just shut up. And then you have your audience come back and say you're not speaking enough anymore. It's like, huh. Um, <laughs> you cannot win. We've learned that. <laughs> literally can't win. Um, I've also been told my voice sounds like that of a serial killer. Like it's stuff where you just like. <laughs> it's, it's Some yeah. of the stuff you get so funny. Like some of the stuff. What Someone said that I looked like Voldemort oh last God. year. And a thumb. Um, and who was the person, Zara? Someone earlier this year left a comment on my most recent 30 photos saying I looked like a thumb. And then I deleted them all. <laughs> and then they did it again. <laughs> And this is the thing is I actually hesitate to talk about it because I know they listen to then go and comment mm. again. My question mm. for you is, so you wrote to me and you said that not to worry about it and that I was doing a great job and to keep going and to hear that from you guys in that moment meant an incredible amount to me. So I thank you for that. You've also, you said you struggled with negative reviews yourself at that time, 18 mm. months on. What is your process for dealing with those and how do you take the ones that, you know, should be, you know, impactful and sh that you should actually pay attention to versus the ones that are just cruel? Like how do you separate those two things? It's funny because I think this is the majority of the work that I've done on myself and with this job in the last six months is being like, all right, how do I know what's good feedback and what's just going to what is deliberately designed to make me feel shitter about myself, right? And I, I think it's like the first conversation I had with my psychologist being like, well, she's like, you're feeling so low about yourself because you read every single thing that's ever written about yourself and that's not healthy. Like that's not how you're meant to, to live. And I remember saying to her, well, I read everything because I have to. Like I have to know how to get better at my job. And she said, well, I think you're selling yourself short because you're assuming that you can't tell the difference between um, helpful feedback and unhelpful feedback. And I think that you're probably not a narcissist and can probably tell the difference or a psychopath and can tell the difference between <laughs> what is helpful and what is not helpful. That was like the most clarifying thing in the world for me, being like, back yourself to know what's helpful, back yourself to know what's unhelpful. And I think the minute someone wants to put their name to feedback, I'll listen to it much 100%. more than I will if they won't. Oh if God. people want to send us emails and people do, I would much prefer that when they're being thoughtful and are happy to kind of stand by their opinions. Because if I have to put my name to everything that goes on this podcast, I want you to be able to put your name to everything you disagree with. And so if people want to come to our Instagram DMs from a legitimate profile, then we'll happily listen. I mean, we're inundated with messages all the time. So sometimes it's kind of impossible to get through everything. But for me, A, it's being able to back myself and being like, I, I, can, han I can handle like constructive feedback I know what is constructive feedback and then to be able to acknowledge that I will listen to anyone who wants to put their name to it. And that doesn't mean we'll change every single thing we do based on other people's opinions, but it does mean we'll listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's been such a huge learning curve for us to realise that not everyone will like everything. And if you're trying to create a show that everyone's going to love, you're going to create a pretty bland, boring show because you'll never say anything that you actually think. And 
it actually was a process. My psychologist made me do this earlier this year because it was something I was really struggling with. And I think anyone who is in the public eye knows how naked you sometimes feel and how vulnerable you sometimes feel to feedback, particularly because sometimes you're having a shitty day and something's happened in your personal life and then you open your phone and you've had this really awful message written about you. So like 99% of the time, feedback doesn't penetrate. But there's that 1% every month where your guard is down and it just absolutely skewers you. And my psychologist said, you need to reckon with the fact that any piece of content that anyone puts out will be hated by some people. And that's not a reflection of the artist. And you don't think that's a reflection of the artist. So she got me to go look at the reviews of my favorite books. So I went on Goodreads and I put in Normal People by Sally Rooney. I put in um, Heartburn by Nora Ephron, a whole bunch of works that I love from women over the last few decades. And I read the reviews. And even though some of the reviews were scathing, people saying they were totally overrated and they didn't understand why everyone held this woman up as being successful or something to aspire to, it didn't change my view of the book that I loved and it didn't change my view of the woman who wrote it. And I think that was a fear all along that I thought if someone else read a negative review about me or read a negative review about the show, that would completely reframe the way they consume Shameless mm. every week. And I categorically just don't think that's true. And it's like it sends you into the most irrational spiral, right? Because I think the, the fear for mine as well was, and it's so stupid when you say it out loud and that's why it's so great saying stuff out loud, but I used to be terrified for my family and friends coming across stuff. I was petrified that they would read stuff about me, that they would suddenly be like, oh, there's this element of Zara I've never considered and maybe that's true. <laughs> and you just, it just, it kind of walks you the worst. <laughs> it warps your perspective of yourself. And it's taken me a long time to be like, my family and my friends might see stuff that they don't like or, but they probably won't agree with it. Otherwise, why would they spend time with me? Mm-hmm. But it just does and completely also, warp your perception of yourself. Yeah. And also I don't want to be someone who says nothing. It's not true to myself. I'm the kind of person who's opinionated and I really care about the stuff that I care about. And I'm not going to shy away from speaking about tricky topics that might be incredibly divisive just because it's the easier thing to do or the more gentle thing to do. I know that's not everyone and I absolutely appreciate that not all people in the public eye will be that way. But being true to myself is speaking with candor about the things that matter to me. And I know for a fact every time I get up on the podcast and do that or Zara does that, we get negative reviews because you're going to rub, if you have 100,000 listeners on your Monday episode, you're going to rub at least 100 the wrong way mm-hmm. by something you say within the hour. <laughs> at least. Like mm-hmm. 100 is like a great day. Probably a 1,000. Probably at least 1,000. That Won't actually like gives me said. so much comfort and I think like <laughs> – to the point on just like be someone who says something like I know you both would be sort of reconciling with this as well with the Black Lives Matter movement. Part of it for me has been we well, just got to fucking fail trying because for you oh, to yeah. not say anything at all, you know, like isn't you can't do that. So you're going to have to educate yourself like you should have been doing a long time ago and you're going to mm. have to stick your neck out and you're going to get it wrong. And I actually have been, <clears throat> excuse me, sharing and then when I do get feedback that that person believes that my opinion's wrong then I share that too and I'm like here we go Mm. you know Mm. like I'm just going to try and model for people what it looks like to fail trying because if we're not saying anything at all then you know 
And I actually think some of our own listeners have been so instrumental in shaping the show and how we approach different topics. Like Zara and I have a handful of names in our heads all the time of really passionate, really incredible, shameless listeners who have kept us accountable and who have educated us along the way and have been really great members of the shameless community because when we have gotten it wrong, they've taken the time and put in the emotional labor to kind of pull us up on it. And we're so grateful to those people. And we love the fact that we can platform them in our newsletter sometimes, and we can share their stuff on Instagram and we can point to them and hopefully platform them in some different ways because we absolutely have not gotten it right a hundred percent of the time. And I feel like that's one aspect of Shameless that I'm proud of in that I can look back on a segment we did two years ago and think I would never say that now. I would do that entirely differently. My view on that has completely shifted. And I think if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't be growing and neither would Zara. Mm -hmm. We have to give each other permission to grow, you know, and we're going to grow through the microphone, which is like, (laughs) you know, the scariest thing. Scary. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Zara, I really loved the chapter... Oh, I, for both of you, I love the chapter on voice at the end. Um, but Zara, you wrote a very um, touching, I found, personal essay on that about giving yourself permission to grow into yours, to grow into your voice. Um, I'll leave it for people to read, but there is a story you bring up about a friend who contacted you <clears throat> after he'd been with his mates and they'd spent an evening slagging you off, essentially. Mm. I wondered out of that, you know, as you sit here today, what would you say to that group of, was it guys or girls? What doesn't really matter? Girls. Oh, it was girls. girls. Oh, even more lovely. Mm. (laughs) What would you say to that group of girls who sat around mocking you? Like, what would you want them to learn about what they did? I think my first question would be, why are you so annoyed? Like, why are you actually annoyed right now? Because um, for context, I think they were slagging me off. And what I was told was they were, they were kind of making strange comments about the episode I did with Michelle on Love, Etc. when I spoke about my long history of painful sex. And I think the first question I would ask is like, is like what's, what's really going on here? Because am I the problem? Who's triggered? Or is something else going on here? Um, and I, I think that's kind of all you need to say. You just throw your hands up, drop the mic and walk out. Because I think that's all you have to say to a lot of people who are being really negative or who are kind of slagging something off without really knowing why they are. Um, and that's not to say I'm not worth slagging off from time to time. I think there are definitely <laughs> things I do that are worth slagging off. But that in particular, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that's where your negative energy should be going. Um, but, yeah, it's a really interesting one. And I think it's so funny. It's probably one of those scenarios where none of those people remember it at all, but it is such a firm fixture in my memory from last year and such a firm fixture in Michelle's probably too because she fended all my phone calls about mm-hmm. it. Um, I was laughing out loud at the basic bitches guide to the basic bitch guys you'll sleep with in your twenties. <laughs> it made me think of um Art Boy, which was my signature flavor of boy in my twenties. Um he wasn't on your list, by the way, but he exists. Um on set We never slept with him, clearly Zara. <laughs> I mean I definitely didn't. <laughs> oh, Art Boy. I don't know what I had for him. Um there was many art boys that it was just, it's so interesting, actually. I married a creative director, but he's kind of like like the monocle art boy, not the... I love that. It's like a glowed up art boy. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> is. Art boy that actually turned into a success. Um, so, Zara, you just mentioned your um, struggle 
with painful sex for close to seven years, which I was just trying to get my head around that as a, a, a volume of time. Um, I thought it was such a beautiful personal essay that you wrote on that. And, and am I going to pronounce this properly? Vaginismus? Vaginismus. Oh. Welcome. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, suffering from that and how that chronic pain led you to hating sex the essay concludes with your realization that the moment you up and opened up about it publicly, your body began to heal. I wondered for the women listening who might also be experiencing chronic pain, can we unpack that a bit? Because you even referenced it, how you didn't want to be the person who said that. Mm. But at mm. the same time, that was your reality. What do you think happened? Like, what is that thing that happens to our bodies at the moment we kind of go into a, I guess, a process of admission and acceptance that the yeah. pain starts to subside, I guess. You're so right. It is like the the ending to that essay that I never wanted to write. Like I didn't want to write that painful step, that sex stopped being painful when I started to kind of like forgive myself and started to stop feeling shame and found myself kind of safe. I felt safe around sex. And I... I think there's real, real merit in talking about our bodies and about shame. I think that women are plagued with shame, particularly around our bodies. And when it comes to chronic pain, I think the pain I was feeling was just so compounded by the fact that I hated my body. Like I hated my body, not because necessarily how it looked. I fundamentally hated how it functioned. And I'd never heard anybody talk about that. I'd never heard anybody say, I'm really pissed off that my body doesn't function in the way that I want it to. And I just felt, I spent so long being so angry, so angry at the world and at my body and I didn't speak to anyone about it. I literally kept it to myself for seven years. And my best friends probably kind of blows their minds now how open I am about talking about it because I didn't give them the word vaginismus for seven years. I didn't tell them why I never spoke to them about sex. I just kind of kept it inside of me. And when you look at that timeline and you think about someone who's just keeping all this anger and shame to themselves, you wonder why they didn't self-combust. And I think I probably did self-combust. It's why sex didn't get any better. So, I mean, it's not going to be the quick fix for everyone. Just telling people to stop stressing about it and to stop feeling shame is not going to be the quick fix for everyone. But what I would say is start really talking to people because when you start really talking to people about what you feel shame about, you'll realise that either a lot of people have felt similar shame to you or you'll realise that there's no need to feel the shame that you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting thing, you know, when we label something, we hand our power over to it. And mm-hmm. it's so fascinating when you begin to communicate something and unpack it and share it, it almost disempowers it in a way because you've kind of shown it that you have some control or reasoning over what's happening and so it starts to lose its. I, I value your response. I think I wanted to talk about it because for the women who still are feeling the pain, you know, they read that and they're like, oh, so I just talk about it and it goes away and I, yeah, I hear what I you're saying. It's, like it's, it's such a longer process than that, but it starts sure. there. And I think that's valuable to to talk about. Um, I also, um, Mish, was it you in the book where you were talking about the pregnancy test? Mm-hmm. How many of us have been in that fucking public toilet? <laughs> <laughs> My, one of mine I was, will... yeah, I'm, yeah, it was at um, Icebergs, the club, and uh, not the, not oh the dining goodness. room, by the way. Couldn't afford to go oh up there. Oh, my God. Um, and I remember doing the tissue folding and putting it on top of the toilet paper holder and just, like, sitting there and it's like you 
had your friend kind of like talking about her exams or whatever. And I remember just sitting there on my own and it's that process of like, well, what will I do here? Mm. You know? And I think that was actually a piece that we weren't sure if we wanted to include in the book. I think that was one of the ones that I ummed and ahed about more than any of the others. But I wanted to include it because I think it's something that I've seen all my girlfriends go through. It's something I definitely went through multiple times in my 20s, whether I was single and dating people and sleeping around or whether I was with my boyfriend right now. And I think the experience of a pregnancy scare, and I know this is an incredibly touchy topic for any woman who has struggled with infertility or miscarriages, but if you don't want to be pregnant and you're having a pregnancy scare, I think it does put a whole bunch of emotional labor onto women and that we have to consider our lives with this new child or we have to consider our lives going through a termination. And I think that level of investment that we have into our bodies and into potential pregnancies is so much higher than what men have, unfortunately. And I feel like the burden of contraception as well and the pressure to not use condoms Mm. is something that I absolutely felt when I was a young woman. I felt like the onus was on me to make experiences as pleasurable as possible for men and that the inconvenience of asking someone to wear a condom or pushing back on them when they say that they don't want to was just almost insurmountable. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was so more than willing to put my body through things, put my body through the morning after pill or put my body through pregnancy scares and risk it rather than push anything onto the men that I was dating. Mm-hmm, to not and be I think that that's girl. Just such, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, you want to be the cool girl. And I think that. You want to be like the girl in porn. Yeah. That's what the 100%. expectation is. You know what I mean? That I'm going to be all sweet with that and I'm going to be able to do all these flexi moves and all these different positions and I'm going to squeal with delight. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what's so dangerous about, I think, like I worry so much about young men and their access, the access they have to porn. Because like if you think about like a teenage boy today, he's going to go into his sort of like sexual years with this expectation that that's what it's going to be like and that, yeah, like chicks don't wear podcast, uh, podcast condoms. <laughs> chicks definitely don't wear podcasts. <laughs> well, I just don't think I had, I don't think I realised that level of accountability I wore on my own shoulders until I was in a relationship where my partner is just as invested in contraception and very open about how we're going to go about things and kind of shares the load with me. I didn't actually realize until I was in the dynamic that I'm in now where it's a conversation, like what we're going to do to not fall pregnant is something we both share. It's not just on me and I'm not the only one who has to pay for it. And it's not my body that has to go through side effects or whatever every single month. So it's just so interesting because I think so many young women swallow these attitudes and these beliefs and they don't even realise it until they have the gift of hindsight. Mm -hmm. I would love to switch gears to business. Yeah. One of my (laughs) favourite things to talk about. Um, So you've both spoken before about following your gut instincts, but that those instincts are often also strategic, which I thought was really interesting. What are your instincts telling you about building a media company in 2020 and beyond? (laughs) Our instincts tell us to keep it very small and agile. (laughs) Lean, (laughs) mean fighting machines. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly interesting time to work in media. Like, it's a pretty horrendous time to work in media, watching so many people that I know and went to uni with uh, being made redundant and looking for work and so many iconic kind of titles being shot and you kind of sit on from the sidelines thinking, all right, well, I'm absolutely not immune from this. Like just because we're in podcasting now and podcasting seems to be kind of thriving doesn't mean that podcasting will thrive forever. I mean, look at magazines. They mm-hmm. thri- They were thriving once too. So for us building a business, we've had these conversations back and forth, particularly in the last few months saying, well, we need to keep a lean team and we need to keep really agile. Like we need to be Ross Geller in Friends when he's kind of carrying that... <laughs> What is it? Couch around the stairs and he's just saying pivot, pivot, pivot. Like all we need to do. Like, where is this going? I was hoping you kind of got it the minute I said Ross Geller, but it doesn't seem like no. you did. We just all I was to- imagining was like a dinosaur museum. No, pivot. Anyway, to be pivoting. And I think that's one thing we always say to each other. How do we stay agile? How do we pivot? And we may need to make sure that our eyes are open and we don't have our blinkers on and that we can see how the industry is changing and what the trends are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big It's a big thing for us to be able to work with so many freelancers. Like we have a big team of freelancers that we work with, if not every week, definitely every month, like photographers and videographers and illustrators and freelance writers and Jess Nguyen, who does a shameless recipe every week. Like there's a whole bunch of people, graphic designers. And we love that part of the business. Like we love that through what we do and what Shameless has grown into, we can work with really incredible young women. Um, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse that unfortunately that's the state of the media right now that you do have to freelance and you have to rely on different incomes um, and have your fingers in a few different pies. But we hope that we can always keep doing that. Like I think that's a big priority for Zara and I, that we can continue to platform and financially support young creatives because leaving uni, that was one of my biggest fears that there'd be no work. And at that point, there was far more work than what there is for anyone leaving uni right now. So yeah, it's about maintaining a real core group. We've got four of us in the shameless team and then having maybe like six, seven or eight freelancers that we do contract with, work with every single month. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really cool to see you guys taking your partnerships in-house. I think that's such a beautiful step forward, isn't it? Like we have to start where we have to start and we learn, you know, Mm. I know in my time in publishing, I learned so much working with agents and managers and you get to know so much of that part of the business. Um, But I was really happy for you guys when I saw that you decide to take it in-house because there's so much more strategy and control. And I thought that was such a cool, um, maybe I saw that as like a moment of growth in a way where you're like, yeah, okay, we're ready. And we feel kind of really capable to be able to run this ourselves now. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's exactly it. It felt like a huge moment of growth for us, like kind of a adult moment, like, all right, let's really do this. Um, it's a bit terrifying mm. bringing people in-house and kind of growing the team. We had um, a great kind of year and a half in the structure that we were operating with a manager and it kind of got us to the point where we thought, all right, what's next? Like, how are we going to, how are we going to grow the team and how are we going to kind of grow the shameless brand and bringing someone in-house has been already the best decision we've made and it's been two weeks. It's yeah, the best decision, so the best business decision we've made 
easily because it's meant that we kind of are, it's actually interestingly, I think, increased our workload almost exponentially because we are just so much more across everything that's happening in our business and are so much more invested in how it's going to grow. So, but that's been a really beautiful thing. Like it's been really nice having an added workload, even though you're employing someone else. Mm-hmm. No, it's yeah. Cool. And to also have someone who's not as invested as us, like realistically, no one will ever be as invested in Shameless as what Zara and I are. But to have someone on the team and feel like you have someone there every single day, Monday to Friday, to bounce ideas off, I think that's our favourite part of the job for sure, like coming up with ideas and kind of refining those ideas and curating them until we're really happy with them. And I think um, Rhiannon, who joined the team a couple of weeks ago, has just been absolutely incredible, like the best decision we could have made because she's just so wonderful. And has no issue telling us when our ideas are bad and when we're wrong, yes. which is what we wanted. We need and her that. skill set's entirely different to ours. Her skill set is so completely different. And I think she adds so much in that Zara and I, we know what we know and we have a lot of like blank spaces where we're just completely clueless and have no knowledge base whatsoever. So for Rhiannon to come in and kind of fill those gaps has been so wonderful. Mm-hmm. No, a huge congratulations. I was, yeah, really happy to see it. And I do have another question actually about podcasting at large. Um, mm. You know, you spoke about the future of media and look at magazines and I would relate the same to, I mean, I ran digital media brands that left the market, you know, and there were global titles that, you know, arguably should have still been here. Um, I'm starting to think a lot about podcasting. You know, it's wonderful that you see all these new podcasts launch, especially in this in in Australia. I I love that more women are getting their voices out there and recording them. Part of what worries me though is that we go back to where we were with, you know, magazines and then websites where it's like a lot, you yeah. know, and then what happens to the commercial side of the industry when, you know, clients have more choice but lower quality. I wanted to know um, what keeps you up at night when you think about podcasting? Oh, what keeps, <laughs> I guess, I guess ever losing that sense of kind of like refined or curated quality. I mean, I understand your point about worrying that podcasting, because it just gets so big and, and so many people want to do it, that the kind of the quality lessens because it's just, just by virtue of scale. But I think the core difference between podcasting and digital media is that I don't think podcasting will ever be as reliant on clickbait as as digital media was. Mm-hmm. And I think that clickbait in particular and such a reliance on algorithms like Facebook really dumbed down content. And I think that's why people jumped to podcasting because suddenly it was stuff that was quality and in-depth and thought out and researched. And if we ever ever put a podcast up where we hadn't done hours of research and hours of reading, then that would keep me up at night and the lowering of our standards would keep me up at night. I mean, if anything, we dedicate more hours to our episodes now than ever. But yeah, when it comes to that, all, all I want for the podcasting industry is for for that thoughtfulness and for that quality and for that depth to never leave because I think that what that's what makes it so beautiful. Yeah, I think as far as what keeps me up at night, it's certainly the thought of letting our audience down, like putting out an episode that that they don't like Mm. or that didn't sing to them or that was poorly researched, as Zara said, that is what keeps me up at night. I hate the thought of putting out, like there is almost nothing worse in this job than not being happy with the Monday episode. It's just something that gets me. And Zara knows that it gets me because I often nitpick at things. Like we'll finish an episode and I'll be like, 
Did we do like the quick and dirty? Was that our best? Like, is that the best we can do? Should we like re go over it? Like, was there anything we missed? Do we need to add a point? And she'd be like, no, it's fine. And I get in my head almost every recording being like, this has to be good enough. Like it has to be good enough for a woman to give us an hour or a man to give us an hour of their time. It has to be great. Mm -hmm. And so I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, a lot of pressure trying to make sure that the next episode is the best we've done or the next episode is at least as good as the week before. And I absolutely despise the feeling of putting out an episode that I'm not entirely comfortable with. And it does happen. I think it, it like everyone's mm. human. You're not always going to get the best out of yourself every single week for a variety of factors. Um, but we're definitely motivated by not letting the quality slip. And that's probably our worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. Oh, me too. And like some of the hardest conversations I've ever had is with guests where I haven't run the episode. Yes. Fucking hell. It's very uncomfortable. You know, and I I take all of that ownership because I, you know, thought we were going to have a conversation that we didn't. I structured my questions in a way that were not suitable to your skill set and your talent maybe I wasn't as researched as I could have been, but then at the same time, I'm the same as you guys. Like I probably spend 10 hours in prep, you know, before Mm. I interview someone. So, um, but they're the hard ones, I think, when you've Mm. got to go back and say like, this just isn't an accurate representation of you and your talent and your skills and what you have to say, because I didn't hold this right. Um, But they're hard. Like, have you guys experienced that as well? Multiple times. And we always tell someone if someone's episode isn't going, we'll be upfront about that. We hold on to some episodes. Like we've got some in our episode bank that are six months old now, but we've only held on to them because coronavirus happened and the tone of those interviews and the content being discussed doesn't really fit, particularly when it's a Melbourne person we're interviewing and they're talking about like all these incredible things. It's just a bit jarring to listen to that with Melbourne lockdown and everything. So we've held on to some for a while, but we've binned. I would say Zara almost a handful mm. of interviews Ooh, that yeah. we've sat down to do. And it is it is a very daunting feeling having to go back to that person or that person's manager and explain why. But at the end of the day, I'd prefer to have that uncomfortable exchange rather than put out a, an episode that I'm just not confident with. Me too. Yeah. Mm. These are all the little behind the scenesy bits that like yes. <laughs> no one really knows about. Before I ask the girls my final question, as privileged people with public platforms, I wanted to use this episode as an opportunity to hold each other accountable for the action we're each taking to become long-term allies to Black, Indigenous people of colour and other underrepresented voices. My intention is accountability, not performance, but I share this with an awareness that I don't get to choose how it lands and trying to control the message is a function of my privilege. For Offline, alongside recurring donations to my nominated charity, Gunawira, I've implemented a diversity and inclusion quota for the podcast. It's disappointing that I need one, but given only 20% of my previous guests across seasons one to four identify as black, indigenous, people of colour, or belonging to other underrepresented groups, it's pretty evident I need one. Beyond this, my commitment to continuing to learn how to be an ally to the voices I have so far silenced through their very omission from my daily life and the podcast 
will happen privately but consistently. Here's the girls. Yeah, well, I think one of the first ones, are is that we made a commitment to each other that we're going to firstly complete Leila Saad's Me and White Supremacy workbook, which we did um, while the Black Lives Matter rallies were going on and it was really... I guess at its absolute pinnacle of public consciousness back in May, June. And I think we both really want to revisit that multiple times a year, that we want to do that coursework. And it is work and it's very confronting work, but we want to put ourselves through that multiple times, so probably twice a year, every year, to check back in with how we're doing and to kind of um, keep ourselves accountable, as you said, Alison, like make sure that this stuff is front of mind. Um, it's It's been a huge huge learning experience for a lot of white people. And I think putting yourself in the uncomfortable position of learning and grappling with how you have contributed to white supremacy is so important. And I think a lot of people don't want to do it, but I think it's it's absolutely your responsibility. If you want to be a good person and you want to be a big hearted and compassionate person, you have to, because whatever uncomfortable feeling you have doesn't even begin to compare the uncomfortable reality of experiencing racism or microaggressions every single day. I think generally speaking, we tend to look at the podcast, particularly the In Conversation episodes every month. Yeah. And we really do try and make sure that we have a difference in voices and difference in people coming on to that podcast because we don't want to just platform the one kind of story. Yeah, I think that's a huge one for us. I think we know that the power that we have is to tell different stories, right? And for us, we think kind of very holistically about the different kinds of stories that we're platforming at every single episode. And our responsibility now is to keep telling different stories, particularly stories that have been ignored or silenced by like this very white supremacist structure that we've all kind of existed in, that we have all thrived in. Um, And that too with our book club, like what books are we reading? What stories are we telling there? What conversations are we having with each other to make sure that this is not just the same story over and over and over again? And I don't know, I think it's, it's something that we've never really, it's something that we've got so much work still to do in. It's something that I think it's good, again, that Mish and I have each other because we're constantly keeping each other accountable and able to do stuff like Layla Said's challenge together and be able to bounce off each other and say, where are our real holes here and how can we get better? Mm-hmm. Because it is something that you can see online now is already kind of fading out of the public consciousness and um, I never want it to fade out of ours. Mm-hmm. No, I thank you for sharing that. And um, I think it's an interesting thing, like when I was reflecting you know, I had that very privileged position of um, fragile position of being like, but I advocate for all of these things and all these important topics and I produce these deep podcasts. And then it was this big sort of moment of um, learning that you can't advocate for all of that and not this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. That can't exist, you know, all of those things can't exist without this one. So um, mm. so I appreciate that. Um, so my final question I um, ask each of my guests at the end of every episode, offline is an exploration of true self. Um, Who are we without the labels? And for you guys, the podcast, the Shameless Girls, when you're sitting in your true self, who are you and what comes up when I say that? Oh, Mish just pulled back from her microphone, which is our body language, which is our podcast body language thing of you're speaking. Who am I when I sit in my true self? I would say that when I 
am considering myself. And like I said earlier in this chat, I feel like I do know myself more and, and feel kind of stronger than I ever have. I would say I am a good listener and thoughtful and that I want to, I'm consistently frazzled, like always very, very frazzled and stressed. Um, but when I identify with myself, it's kind of those things. It's those things that I want to be. And I might not always be those things at all times, but if I'm checking in with myself, right. And I'm saying, okay, am I being the best version of myself today? I would ask myself, are you listening to people? Well, are you being thoughtful? Are you consistently thinking about others and asking them questions? And if you're doing those things, then I think you're, you're doing okay. I don't know. I'm so terrible at kind of this like public self-analysis. So Mish will probably come in and like do hers really well and I'll want to redo mine. <laughs> oh, no. I did have thinking time, but no. I, my true self, I, I have always been incredibly passionate and outspoken. And I remember when I was a little kid, I used to have like debate wars with my uncles and my aunties because they just found it so funny that whatever issue they brought up, whether it was environmentalism <laughs> or refugees as I was a child, I had like my, my ideas and my thoughts on it. And I really wanted to like debate with them and argue and kind of flesh it out. And I think that's me. I think for a while, I kind of didn't want to be that loud person. I didn't want to be that opinionated person because I think sometimes we speak of women who have opinions as women who are unruly or who refuse to kind of fit into the mold that we want of them. And the older I get and the more I get to know myself, the more I'm comfortable with that, the more I like that about me, that I think it's a good thing to stand up for what you believe. And I think more women should feel like they can do that because there's a lot of power in speaking about the things you believe. Um, sometimes I need to check myself and kind of remove emotion from it because I'm an incredibly emotional person. But my truest self is a very, uh, I would hope to think, a very loving, very opinionated, very talkative and very exuberant person would be how I would describe myself. Well, I'd have to agree with that <laughs> for both of you. Um, I want to thank you sincerely for being on my podcast. I know how busy you thank guys you for are. having and, us. Oh, what a pleasure. And a huge congratulations on the space between, like, being authors at 26 is just out of this world, and I think you should be, and I know you are so proud of yourselves. It's an incredible read um, and I'll link it all up for everyone. Um, but, yeah, I thank you and I guess I'll see you not for a while, really. I mean, I can't yeah. think would we ever meet in person. I'm like, probs not for the next year. <laughs> I know. When are we next Hopefully getting to soon. Sydney? Hopefully so. Yeah, because I know so much. your bloody your book tour as well. That's such a shame Ooh. that um, – Rip. All right, page the book tour. Mm. That's all right. We're just so chuffed to be releasing a book in the first place. And we are very, very grateful that you took the time to interview us. We are huge fans of yours and we are so excited to see all these women like flourishing in the podcasting industry, the more the merrier right now. So thank you for taking the time. It's been so lovely to chat. It's and thank you pleasure. for reading the book. That means a lot. <laughs> thank you. So thank yes. you oh my so much. Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's strange having it out in the world and you know, in people's bedrooms and, you know, in people's kind of minds. So thank mm. you for being so generous with your time and for your questions. We really, really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, 
the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them. <laughs>